welcome to the first episode in our three-part MS Path to Care Wellness Podcast Series brought to you by Can Do MS and Sanofi Genzyme. MS Path to Care resources encourage those living with MS to work with their support partners and care teams to address all aspects of MS care and wellness. Each of these podcasts will focus on different dimensions of wellness through the eyes of a couple who has lived with MS for over 30 years, Myra and Steve Lazonic of Elkhorn, Nebraska. In tonight's episode, Myra and Steve will discuss their experiences with mood, cognition, and spirituality with psychologist Roz Kalb. Very happy to be here with Myra and Steve Lazanic um, to talk about some of the cognitive, emotional, and spiritual issues around living with MS. So I'm going to start with you, Myra. How long ago were you diagnosed with MS? Well, it's been 37 years now. 37 years. And do you remember back then how you felt when you were diagnosed, when you got those words? Well, I was really scared because the only person that I had ever known to have it was an next-door neighbor who died very young having MS. And I didn't know if he died of it or at that time that's what they kind of said. But, you know, I think now they don't really say it that way. But, yeah, it made me scared. Must have been very frightening. And, Steve, how about you? Do you remember what you were feeling when you heard about Myra's diagnosis? Like Myra, I was scared also. Uh, having never been through anything like this before, it was a uh, real slap in the face. Here you start your life. We had just celebrated our first anniversary. We had taken a trip to Alaska and coming back from that, she was developing some weird symptoms. In one sense, we were passing them off. It's just, you know, stiffness from the travel and whatnot. But then as we dug into it deeper, we found out it was MS. Yeah, it was really scary because uh, we didn't have the internet back then. We didn't have a lot of knowledge at our hands that we could just say, oh, read about this and learn and go from there. We were kind of left hanging, and uh, that's where the fear comes in. Absolutely. So, Myra, at that time, did your doctor ask you anything about how you were doing emotionally with the diagnosis? No, I don't really remember him asking that. In fact, I've never really had a neurologist or a doctor ask me that, to tell you the truth. Um, He did offer a, a support group, and at that time, I didn't think that was something that I needed. Um, I, I, I really didn't want to acknowledge that I had it. So nobody was asking you how you were feeling. Did you ask yourself how you were feeling emotionally, or did you just kind of put one foot in front of the other? Well, you know, I think what happened was that uh, we lived in a town where they put in a newspaper that I'd been in the hospital, and that's when I had the spinal tap and all that and found out I had MS. So the next-door neighbor asked me why I'd been in the hospital, And she was holding her small child. And I said, well, I found out I had MS. And she took three steps away from me as if I was contagious. And I think it was at that point that I just made this conscious decision. I'm not talking about this to anyone. I don't look like I have MS. I don't have any symptoms. They've given me some medicine by this time, and I felt better. And so I I didn't need to talk about it. Um, so it sounds as though you didn't really focus on your emotional wellness until pretty far after the MS 
diagnosis. So I want to ask you both, what does emotional well-being mean to you now, 37 years later? Well, I think probably uh, holding my emotions or or at least keeping my emotions in check because I think a lot of times with the fatigue of MS, it it tends to um, bubble up the emotions, you know, like I I can get angry easily or, you know, they're like all over the the chart, you know. And so I think trying to do things to help that fatigue, be it taking a rest or exercising or eating right, but anything that will try to alleviate having that fatigue that ends up making it being emotional. And so when you're more fatigued, you would feel like you have less control over the emotional ups and downs? Yes, absolutely. So staying rested helps you feel more. How about you, Steve? Um, what does emotional well-being mean for you personally at this point in your life? It means keeping a calmness and even flow to everything. I kind of relate it to a graph of a sine curve where you start at zero, you go to a positive peak number, let's say one, you come back to zero, go to a negative one, come back up to zero, and that repeats over and over again. Emotional well-being for me would be to keep the positive number as high as it can be, keep the negative, and for as long as it can be, and keep the negative number as small as it can be, or as short as can be. How do I do it? I'm still learning. It's a journey that's never-ending. Because as progression occurs, different situations arise that I need to learn how to manage, how to react to, how to comfort and support, and have patience throughout the whole process. Yeah. It's very interesting because that's sort of an, an engineer's way of describing the same ups and downs that Myra is describing, but Myra attributes some of those ups and downs to the MS itself because we know that emotional liability or ups and downs are a symptom of MS. But for you, it's dealing with your own feelings about all of this at the same time that you're trying to be sensitive to Myra's emotional ups and downs, which is pretty tricky. It is tricky. Sometimes I bury my emotions in trying to be supportive of the ebbs and flows of her emotions. I carry a lot of things internally to where frustration sets in and learning how to deal with that, finding releases for my own emotions, especially back then where the two of us didn't talk a lot about it. I buried myself in my work. I was managing lots of people in a production environment. You're dealing with their issues. And I could uh, easily transition those feelings over to them Mm -hmm. while avoiding having to address the issues that she was going through or how they were affecting me, I should say. So was there a point, because it sounds like you've come to a very different place now, in your relationship, in dealing with the emotions of MS, was there a point at which you, Steve, discovered that you could communicate with Myra in a way that allowed you to own your own feelings, even while Myra was having hers? I I think the the can-do program we went to initially uh, woke us up to being able to communicate in a better way, and I think he realized 
how I was feeling and, and vice versa. Yeah, the, the can-do program, the four-day program, being around other people that were going through the, on the same journey we're going on. And to this day, when we go to jump starts or other MS activities, I kind of feel like I'm with friends, even though I don't know them. You can be yourself. And I can be myself. Uh, we've developed a good friendship with uh, one couple from that we met at CanDo, and that continues now for six, seven years. And to be able to talk with them, which we just did this summer. And you don't necessarily even have to talk about the issues at hand, just the fact that you're talking and having a conversation and you walk away from that with a load off your chest and you feel good. That must be wonderful because I think that load in your chest must over time start to feel really overwhelming, like you're going to explode. At times, at times, yeah. I kind of laughingly say that uh, for exercise, I go swim, and while I'm swimming, I can yell a lot, and nobody's going to hear it. And it's, uh, I don't know, is that a primal thing that I'm getting it out of my system? Could be, but it works, right? Yeah, it works. I used to have to drive 45 minutes to work each day. That alone time in the car allowed me to sort through some emotions, understand what's affecting me and how my life's going. So if I could just recap a little bit of what, what you're saying, you guys were at the Can Do program five years ago. Okay. And you were diagnosed 37 years ago. So what you're telling me is that there were a whole lot of years where you were both keeping a lot of feelings inside. Well, I think a lot of it was that for 20 of those years, I really didn't have a lot of symptoms. And so it was very manageable. No one knew I had it. I could go get some medicine, feel better, and everything was great. And in my mind, I didn't even have MS. I just just thought I was going to live like that forever. And then eventually, about... Oh, 12 years ago, I started having some little small symptoms that were progression. So I think that was at the point when I started realizing that this was real. I do have MS. I have to acknowledge that I have it. And the CanDo program helped me do that. And I think that it opened up that communication for us both to realize that I didn't know that I'm learning things as we do these podcasts, too, from about Steve. You know, we continually... Every time we listen to a webinar or go to a jumpstart or go to uh, learn any kind of information about MS, we are learning about each other in the meantime. And that's, I think, the beauty of all of this. We can't ask any more of you or our programs than that. And could I just add to that? When she was, when she was talking about, you know, for 20 years not having symptoms, when she did have symptoms, for me, it was, you know, the mindset, well, go to the doctor, get a pill. And the problem's over. That's not necessarily so. It's a tough learning curve, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I never really told him that I was having these symptoms, really. I would just sometimes call the doctor and just go get some medicine. I mean, I might say, oh, I'm having some tingliness, but I never made a big deal about it. And so he never really knew for sure what was going on with me, even though I really did know I wasn't admitting it either. Well, it sounds like you were busy protecting yourselves and each other (laughs) from the realities of MS. So we know that MS causes changes in mood and emotions for both people. For you, Myra, diagnosed with MS, and for you, Steve, being a support partner. What aspects of your relationship do you think these changes impacted the most? It sounds from what you've said so far that 
it affected at least your communication. It, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was probably the big thing. I don't know that I, I can't think of another thing that it was affecting. Other than, you know, once I started progressing, then of course everything changed because then there was the issue of how far do I have to walk? You know, I had foot drop and, you know, I'm counting my steps. Then our our lives were changing dramatically. So, um, but up to that point, not so much. Well, this is kind of a tough question, but at CanDo we talk about how communication is is kind of the foundation for closeness, for trust, for intimacy, for feeling like a partnership. So would you say that until you got more comfortable communicating with each other about your feelings, that that created a bit of a, a wall? Between you? Yes. Yeah. Um, as you've been talking, I, I've been thinking about it. And we came from two different worlds, not grossly different or anything like that. But her family was more verbal about health, family issues, and things like that. And my family was not as verbal. Myra was diagnosed, uh, and we had told my mom about it. She said, well, we can't tell your dad because he was dealing with Parkinson's. So I came from a family that didn't talk about emotions, didn't express them outwardly, where she came from what they did. And it was a learning curve for the two of us. She was expecting me to react and learn and express issues the way she was brought up. And I'm sitting there going, what am I doing different? This is the way I was raised, and this is my comfort zone. So I haven't known you very many years now, so I wasn't there for those early years. But it does seem to me now that you're connected in a very wonderful and intimate way in your your partnership. So it sounds as though your ability to communicate about all those feelings you were each having has actually brought you much closer together. Yeah, I I would say that that is true. And and I think the one thing that I've learned through this whole entire process is that I have to express what I need. I cannot sit here and think that he's going to read my mind. And that is exactly what I did for 20 years. I thought he was just supposed to look at me and and know that my fingers were tingling. Now, what? That's a a silly thing to think, but, but that's kind of the way I was. And so then finally... When I'm progressing, you know, occasionally I would mention, oh, my gosh, I'm so tired. My foot's dragging. You know, I don't know what's going on. Why is my foot dragging? But then he would still not ask me, you know, like maybe a couple days later, you know, how is it now? You know, and I would think he should. And so this is what we've learned through going, you know, through listening and and going to uh, can do is that. I have to say what I want and what I need and how I'm feeling. He is not going to be able to read my mind. So one of our goals for this podcast is to help other people go through this process faster than 20 years. Right. Okay, so so if you look back over the last many years, what other symptoms of MS besides these emotional issues uh, contributed to some of the communication barriers? For example, you've talked about some of the physical changes and physical symptoms, but have you experienced any cognitive changes that, that have interfered with your communication? We're in that stage now. Uh, it's been slowly progressing where I may have mentioned something to her or even our daughter has told 
virus something and she doesn't remember it or doesn't remember that we had the conversation. But it, it's uh, weighed heavily on us. Well, I mean, it's come to the forefront, you know, that we now realize that this is kind of an issue, that I have some memory issues, I have um, I have a hard time making a decision, and sometimes, like, particularly when I'm fatigued, for example, we were in uh, with some friends, uh, well, this is when we took a trip, and we met a bunch of people at a restaurant, I was very tired, because I've been up since, like, 5 o'clock in the morning or something, and they said, well, where, what restaurant do you want to eat, what kind of food do you want, I could not tell them to save my soul. I said, somebody just pick it and I will be there. I don't. I just cannot make that decision right now. And that, those are the kind of things that we notice. Or we're with friends. Uh, we have friends that like to play cards and we're not real big game people, but you know, I'll go along with it. And they're explaining the directions of the game and it's kind of going quickly. And it was like, uh, if, if you talk too quickly and give me too many, too much information at once, I can't grasp it all. It just won't process. And so those are the kinds of things that we're noticing in our relationship that he has to be aware of. So knowing that Myra was a very successful teacher for many years, very smart, very quick, very creative, what's it been like for you to watch this gradual change in how Myra processes information or learns things? What did that feel like for you? It's... uh makes you very sad. It, you want to have empathy for the person. Watching it occur, and I'm, I'm thinking about her mentioning being at the restaurant and trying to make decisions. For me, watching what she went through was painful. It was like watching, watching a wave come over her and suck her out to sea. And unless I stepped in, I couldn't keep her on ground. And it was a it was a learning experience because this was the first true I, I would call it hard case of saying there's a cognitive issue occurring. And I did step in and started saying, okay, wait a minute, let's just do this and this and kind of refocus the attention. But it dwelled on her for a long time, pretty much through dinner that night. Uh, I could tell the look in her face that it was an uncomfortable situation for her to be in, and I couldn't fix it. That's that's the issue. I can't fix it. And for you, that must have been like a real in-your-face kind of moment where this is something different about me. Yeah, and it really was because it was with people that I didn't know very well. It was my family, but I hadn't seen them for a long, long time. And so they didn't know me to be this way. And so it was it was embarrassing, really, is how it was. And, and I had to just say to them, I'm sorry, I'm really tired, and I can't make a decision right now. That's what I told them. So now I'm seeing you both in a very, very different place. You seem more relaxed with all of this. You're very open with each other, with me. You talk about all these changes. You just seem much more grounded than the way you've described your experience in the past. So this brings me to a question about the spiritual aspect of of wellness. And now for me, spirituality means really feeling grounded in the world around you, connected in whatever way is meaningful to you. Has this been a part of your lives of dealing with MS? How would you talk about your own um, spiritual wellness if you think about it at all? 
Well, I think that, you know, we've always been churchgoers for one thing, and we've always attended church together. We, my daughter did too, and so that's been a, a big part of our life. But for me now, a lot of my um, spirituality comes from gratefulness, and I, I practice that every day. I Before I go to bed, I think about at least three things, sometimes it's much more, that I'm grateful for. And sometimes it can be as silly as, I'm glad I have a toothbrush, or uh, I have that I have electricity that makes me cool so that I could, don't have to sit in, in the heat that bothers me and what bothers my MS. So those are um, things that I do to help me stay grounded. Steve, is there anything you feel about being grounded yourself because you clearly are in a different way now? I'd say what's grounded me is understanding that all that we've talked about or talk about being grateful. I could say, you know, being able to sit on the porch and watch the sunset or drive through the mountains and see the trees changing colors and all, all those things all play together. They're all gears meshing together in a transmission that's moving us down the road. Her and I, as long as we're communicating and supporting each other, we provide the energy to those gears, to that transmission. MS is breaking a gear or breaking a tooth on a gear where the transmission doesn't work so smoothly. So we need to find workarounds. And on that journey, now I've understood like the cognitive things. I have to make more decisions or do more planning and then bring that to her. And that moves the vehicle through the transmission down the road. In the past, when we took vacations or went on trips, we just say, we're going to go do this. Now, I'll go look. Is a place handicapped accessible? Can we do this? Can we do that? We could go here, we could go there. Then I take that information to her, lay it all out, and then we pick and choose through the menu that I've created and, and put a travel plan together. So what I'm hearing is that part of your groundedness is in the integration in your partnership that you have sure. grown together, worked together, and found this way, whether it's from a teacher's perspective or an engineer's perspective, you found a way to work together in a very powerful way. So thank you for sharing all of that. Thank you, Roz, Steve, and Myra for the engaging discussion. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the MS Path to Care Wellness Podcast Series, a partnership with CanDo MS and Sanofi Genzyme. Be sure to check out the other episodes in the Path to Care series, Diet, Exercise, and Healthy Behaviors, and Home, Work, and Relationships. For additional resources, please visit www.mspath2care.com.